Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, we'll take your questions about how to navigate the unknowns around the Omicron variant as we enter the holidays with Bob Wachter, chair of UCSF's Department of Medicine. And Vanita Blackburn's new short story collection explores what Blackburn calls the physicality of girlhood, girls changing bodies and desires, their athleticism and their fierce protection of each other in the face of threats. It's titled, How to Wrestle a Girl. Vanita Blackburn joins us right after this news. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. To all the wild, mad girls. That's to whom Benita Blackburn dedicates her new short story collection titled How to Wrestle a Girl. It explores what it means to be a teen on the cusp of change who's maybe athletic, strong, queer, acutely aware of gender expectations. Raised in Compton, Benita Blackburn is a creative writing professor at Cal State Fresno. Her previous award-winning collection is Black Jesus and Other Superheroes. Benita Blackburn, welcome to Forum. Thank you for having me. Hi. Hi. You can really feel your California upbringing, the California backdrop of your stories, though they also really transcend geography because they explore all these essential elements of being a teenager, of being a young person. And I was curious what made you want to focus on this time in a girl's life. Um, well, I do write a lot about this period. It's such a time of shifting and sort of figuring out one's own identity despite what the world is you know telling you to be so I'm kind of obsessed with that in general and even as old as I am I'm in my 30s now I'm going to be out of it pretty soon but I still get that people <laughs> people still have expectations and they dare to be disappointed when I don't meet them even though I have no contract to do so <laughs> whatsoever but there seems to be some invisible contract that girls end up sort of being obligated to abide by and I didn't want to explore that. But also, um, I didn't have a book like this when I was growing up, sort of yeah. um, between that age, in, you, know, in, in, you know, between like sort of 13 to mid-20s and this kind of really kind of rough period of, your, of you know, trying to figure out your own body. And, and then um, being, being deeply judged unfairly, maybe, for all kinds of things. Um, and then still trying to have a fun time, you know. <laughs> 
<laughs> so I didn't have a book that met all of that for me. So I kind of wanted it. Like this is the book I would want to have been able to hold when I was that age, learning how to write, learning how to be. Yeah, this book really is that because there are so many tough things that you grapple with, but it's also very funny and surprising at the same time. Like your title story, How to Wrestle a Girl. What I was surprised by was that at the literal level, it was about wrestling <laughs> and it was a step-by-step -step guide to essentially who you view as a male would-be male wrestler who wants mm -hmm. to take down a girl. And I mean, you even talk about the grips and the, the positions to take and the illegal shortcuts like headbutting the girl so the ref doesn't see it. Can you talk a little bit about the inspiration for this particular story? Absolutely. This is one of those that I, I took from real life. So there are a few, even in uh, my first collection, where I just sort of had like a, a law and order SVU moment where you just ripped out of the headlines kind of thing <laughs> and sort of said, <laughs> sort of said, how can look what how does one get to this point? So this the news article is about an actual young teenage girl who was um, a, on her wrestling team, a boys wrestling team. And a lot of the competitors and her peer, teammates didn't want to wrestle with her because she was a girl. And it's sort of, and she was good. So it was sort of that state of sort of having this ability, this power, this drive, and then sort of being denied it for the most ridiculous reasons. And one of them that I thought was um, hilarious was like, I mean, I mean it's, it's still a genuine, you know, legitimate reason, have faith-based reason for not wanting to wrestle a girl. But at the same time, I was like, no, <laughs> what's, <laughs> what's at the root of that? And so, and sort of, and I kept, kept expanding it from there. And I'm not a wrestler. I do, I do have a background in martial arts, but I don't wrestle this kind of wrestling at all. So I did do some, had to do some research to sort of figure out what happens on the, on the mat and watch some videos and things like that. So that helped with um, sort of translating the, the visuals into the kind of the language that made sense for me. But yeah, it was right out of the headline. And as you say, when you think about the roots and, and all that's operating in those moments of a male-female wrestling match, it is a meditation on those power dynamics and even male gender expectations. One of the things that I was struck, struck by was in the piece, The Girl Wins. Um, and I was wondering how you decided to do that. Is that something that you feel is expected or did it almost feel aspirational in a way? For the girl to win in the story? Yeah. In the end, yes. And and force this person to go through all of this questioning of their I, their position in it all. I'm all about winning. I am so weirdly competitive. It's just, you know, I mean, it's a mess. <laughs> it's one of my I'm on a spiritual journey to become less competitive about small <laughs> things. Because yeah, it's it can be a thing that's a little bit problematic in relationships. But I like, I like to win and I do, you know, recognize a lot of girls that win that are just good at what they do, but it does get diminished for some strange reason yes. because of just the, the nature of our civilization right now. We're a little bit ridiculous for, for <laughs> in this, in this regard, but, and I wanted to, I want to do that. I want to celebrate the fact that, yeah, these girls are good. So, and, and even in some of the bigger stories too, where I have these carryover characters, they are champions. Some of them, um, you know, they're going through all of this, this kind of grief and sadness and, you know, all of these other things, but their bodies are performing in ways that are, are superior to a lot of others in terms of their, their particular, you know, physical investments. And I want to, want to go there. You know, this is not a, you know, my, I like stories that are, that are sort of 
touch something that's important to me and something that troubles me too. The fact that we have so many champions, so many winners among these girls and they are not celebrated. Um, and sometimes also because of their queerness, because of their blackness, because of all kinds of things, they're, they're uh, pulled apart for, um, for those. And I want to sort of, yeah, go back to the fact that they are good. It does feel like a celebration, all of that you mentioned. And I want to invite our listeners to join the conversation. If you have questions for Benita Blackburn, or if what she's saying is resonating with you, you can call us at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. You can email us, forum at kqed.org. Benita Blackburn is the author of the new short story collection, How to Wrestle a Girl. There's another story that sort of takes male threat in another direction, and that's the story Halloween, which is something that um, mm -hmm. we also shared uh, that appeared in The New Yorker. And it's the story where this unnamed narrator and her friend Esperanza uh, whose lives we actually follow across several stories in your collection, they see another young girl being followed by a car, a green Honda, which I loved the sentence that you write. You <laughs> say, like something nobody picks out for themselves, but got because they thought it looked normal. <laughs> um, but <Right>? one, <laughs> one of the things is that in, in many ways, this is um, a very relatable story. I know girls who have felt a car tailing them and following them. Um, but the other thing that makes this story feel so real is that while the girls are monitoring the threat of this car on this other girl, they're also preoccupied by like normal everyday things like Esperanza wants to stop and have some now and later, mm -hmm. <laughs> and the narrator wants to stop for a burrito. And, and I was wondering why you included those details, what you were sort of showing us about, about life, essentially. It, it's all happening all at once, right? So just because, you know, girls in this world are, are, are you know, in jeopardy so often, we like to pretend that it's not happening, but it's happening. At the same time, they are still, they're still just children. They still just want to have something sweet and hang out with their friends and, you know, not think about the fact that some, some creepy good, you know, dude is, is um, sort of about to interrupt their entire lives, you know, for something like that. All of it's still real. All of it's happening. And I'm not one to pretend that um, danger, you know, to hide, hide danger from, from girls or children or anything like that. I also don't want to traumatize kids by sort of, you know, having them go through something, you know, traumatic, just as preparation for, you know, future harm, that too is not right. So how do you approach all of these things? What is the answer? Because I don't know. All I know is that I can just show what I see and be honest about it. So those kind of perspectives, and yes, like, like I too have seen that even growing up in um, at, you know, middle school, things were happening to um, my peers and it was also dangerous, you know, walking home from, from school, but every once in a while you had to do it and, or you had to do it all the time. And you just had to, had to have this, you know, extra sense about yourself and about the world. And you're learning this kind of danger all the time, but that doesn't mean that the rest of your life gets to be put on hold. You know, and that's the the essence of you know girlhood and womanhood is sort of yes. dealing with jeopardy and still embracing joy and still finding um, the small delights of life, 
even while, you know, you've got, you know, the sword of Damocles or whatever over, over your head like, every once in a while, you're trying to, you know, negotiate all of that. It doesn't stop just because we want it to. It's, you know, and that's what, that's the kind of literature I'm invested in, the kind of thing that does look a little bit like life, but still blows it up and tries to go a little bit deeper than what we allow ourselves to, to think about. Yeah, it really um, felt like a way of looking at how, as you say, women and girls constantly do live in these threats and the way that we, we navigate them. Actually, we had a listener who, who's, who really felt like your story, Halloween, resonated with them. They write, I read Halloween. It resonated with me so strongly. When I was 13, I was followed by a car as I rode my bike home from school. I was so frightened. I still remember the car, a blue Ford station wagon. I made it home safely, but as I read this, as I read the story, it made me think how amazing it would have been if two older girls had been there, had seen me, and had come to the rescue. In the story, they seem like superheroes. Ah, superheroes. <laughs> It is, as you say, very much a celebration of of the strength of girls and, and almost does turn, you know, the trope of, of girls being kidnapped and so on, on its head a little bit, right? It's like a reversal. Mm -hmm. No, I love that. And I love that comment. Thank you to, from, to the reader for that. But uh, I li like I said, I like to have, I like to champion girls. Like they are very capable in this situation, though, it is a little, you know, it's got a touch of the fantasy, right? So if the, the real encounter, you know, could have gone badly for all three of them. Yes. But in the, in the story, they get to win, you know, just their presence alone was powerful enough to protect that younger girl. And generally, we do, we do function that way. You know, girls are supposed to walk out, you know, in groups. We, you know, that, that group kind of dynamic has, a, has this sort of authority and power that you can walk around the world with. And also you can manipulate other people with, you know, you turn into little little micro tribes and it gets weird in, in schools. And there's another story about that, sort of the the, the danger of the, the group girl, the girl group and that kind of thing. But yes, it is intriguing to think about what it means to get to win and what influence that can have. More with Vanita Blackburn after the break. Stay with us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking to writer Vanita Blackburn about her new book and her own California girlhood that inspired it. Vanita Blackburn's new book is How to Wrestle a Girl. Her prize-winning first story collection is Black Jesus and Other Superheroes. Blackburn is also a creative writing professor at Cal State Fresno and the founder and president of Live Write, an organization that provides free creative writing workshops for communities of color. And Vanita, I understand that you have a passage that you would like to read for us from your story, Smoothies. And just to give our readers a little sense of this, it, it's a story that takes place at a Jamba Juice stand at the mall uh, where the unnamed narrator is told, you look like a man. And it's about how she processes these words. Is there anything that you'd like to say about it before you read your selection? 
Um, this one was somewhat um, from one of those cross genre things, a little bit nonfiction. So it has an essence of a feeling that happened to me when I was much younger, but it was a family member that was involved with it. So I, and not, you know, a lot of it wasn't um, exactly this, but it definitely happened in the mall. And there was this particular kind of feeling that I wanted to sort of explore. And um, that's kind of the genesis of this story. All right, let's hear your excerpt from Smoothies. All right. When I get hurt, usually the universe opens up a little, like a bullet through a watermelon. Things separate and scatter. It feels like this is how we really are all the time and everything else is just pretend. We pretend to have legs and skin and penises and milk ducts. We pretend some skin looks one way while other skin is different. We pretend to have green eyes and brown eyes and yellow teeth and gray teeth and the sky is blue to us in the day and black at night. We pretend lots of things that are only sort of true. When we are the sky and time and memory and the center of the earth and destiny and gods and gravity and salted oceans and children of the gods who ate their mothers and birthed the constellations and nebulas and death are a myth because everything goes into itself to begin again. There was fear and doubt on the boy's face when I finally turned away. The condemnation dissolved. I, a girl, would grow to be a better man than he and still be a woman. Hmm. There's that really powerful celebration at the end. Of course, I couldn't help but notice that um, I believe it's in Ground Fighting, another story in your book where you or the narrator competes at an arm wrestling match with a man um, that the narrator again hears that they are a man. And uh, given the fact that you have these two stories and they both talk about the pain of that moment, like for example, in ground fighting afterwards, um, the narrator says, at that last declaration, a man is what she is. At that last declaration, I felt a different kind of hurt familiar and wicked, the suggestion that something about my body was not quite right. I, I did wonder, as you say, that that there's some element of nonfiction. If this was something that you experienced when you were younger and, and when you reflect on that reaction, when you reflected on that reaction to write about it, how how you feel towards that that younger person? Yeah, for me, it was mostly in the way I was dressing. So it was a, a just a, a clothing choice. Like my hat, I had my hat backwards or something, which was cool <laughs> at the time. It was, you know, it's very small thing, but it was rebuked. I, I was met with, you know, um, disdain for that. And it was based on gender. So it was just, just that small thing where I'd crossed a line that I didn't know existed. And I was so young that it was just fascinating to me that um, that this was even a thing. You know, like no, I had not been warned, and also that this was just the beginning of something else. You know, some other kind of thing. So as I grow on, even even now, I, I always say that I dress like a dad on a, on vacation. <laughs> but um, so so it's like a it's a thing. Like oh, these these choices that make sense for me don't make sense for the world, and it's and it's such a small kind of you know, reprogramming they're trying to do. Yes. But my own nature is just a little bit more powerful than that. So it's like, we're going to be in a fight forever over this, <laughs> pretty much. And that's sort of where this character was going, is sort of going like, it's not, they weren't going to break down for this. They weren't going to go sort of, you know, retreat into sort of trying to be something else. It was, oh, 
there, there is going to be, I'm going to be met with his hostility now. And it might, it probably won't ever go away. So this is now my life, but it's not a life that's going to be, you know, broken by this, by this moment, by any means. But also it's an exploration of tone, right? It's not so much the words themselves, it's everything else. It's the feeling, that tone that comes in of hatred and, and also self-loathing if the, for, for the whole story. It's not just that it's, it's a projected loathing of trying to understand how can I be better? So I have, you know, for, a, for males, for boys, I, to be better is to not be a girl, to, to be a man is to not be this. So that must be bad. You know, and don't get me started on gender reveal parties. <laughs> like right. that whole fiasco. Right. And I've seen, you know, uh, grown men just cry and fight because they got the pink cake or the pink whatever. Because, you know, how, how horrible is that to be hated before you're born to be less than you, you than any than the other. And both, you know, both don't even really exist yet. It's just all this imaginary hierarchy that's just really fascinating to me. And it's just so disturbing and so unnecessary. But, but here we are. What I really um, am fascinated too by is like the later generation, like the, the Zeds, I call them the Zeds, the, the, the Gen, Gen Z. Z. Yeah. But they, they are really sharp about recognizing kind of this imaginary rule that does not entirely make sense. It's just habitual. It's not innate. It's nothing, you know, so, so human, you know, gen- binary genders. It's not, it's not that, you know, um, written in stone, written in our code. We are on the spectrum of all kinds of things. And they recognize that in a way that I don't, that we haven't seen in a long, long time for our civilization, I think. They are also very rigid and very puritanical about a lot of things. And they will fight you <laughs> on, on, in police your language in so many profound ways. And I'm, I'm just like, oh, calm down, calm down, you know, have <laughs> That but is the, that is very true, but it sounds like you're hopeful. You're very optimistic. I'm optimistic. Um, I don't use the word hope. I don't know if you know this one, but I, <laughs> there are certain words I don't believe in. I don't believe in hope. I don't believe in deserving things. You know, I do believe in acceptance and calculations and sort of evaluation and reflection and all of this, but hope why feels you, paralyzing to me. Like I was just about to ask you, why don't you believe in hope? Hope feels paralyzing. Paralyzing in what way? It, it suggests to me that you're going to sort of, it's like wishful thinking instead of taking action and sort of seeing how you got to one point and how you will get to another point. Hope sort of says, stand still and see what happens. And actually, sometimes that's good. You know, if, the, if you're really out of options and you've done all you can, might as well just hope. But it seems like a last resort to me, which is not always a fun place to be. Hmm. But I get it. I get the appeal. It's very coping to some folks. And I'm not trying to steal your hope. I'm not sure <laughs> this Christmas be the Grinch, but no. <laughs> but no, I, I think you're you're offering a really interesting way of looking at it. Um, Judith writes, I'm listening and thinking my granddaughter would enjoy this book. Do you recommend it for a 13-year-old? Absolutely. I recommend it <laughs> <laughs> for everyone. I mean, you know, she might be surprised by some things, but uh, no, I think everyone can read. I, I recommend it to the 80s, to the even eight-year-olds, maybe. There, it could be a little shocking to some degree, but it, I don't think there's anything in there that I would hide from children, for sure. Because I think in this world, they've seen more than more than we think. And that but there's something. Your... Um, oh, Sorry, go, go right ahead. No, there's, there, there is something, I think, um, encouraging to gr- for girls in this book in a way that's 
a little bit unusual. So yes, I would take the risk and show this to, to those agents. Another selection is from the story that I referenced earlier, ground fighting, uh, where the narrator arm wrestles a boy, um, the narrator and Esperanza, another character are together waiting for their food at a taco stand. Again, still conjuring so many images for me of Southern California and growing up in Southern yeah. California. <laughs> Um, and so if you'd like to say a little bit about this one before you read from it. No, yeah, the, the environment was very much centered on my SoCal childhood. So some of the images that were evoked in terms of the environment, the nature, the skies and all of that kind of thing. So, um, that is part, that's very much part of the story. And then also I get tired of reading all these New York stories, all this Brooklyn stuff. <laughs> like there are West coast folks you know, doing some things and living their lives to no offense to the New Yorker people, but um, I did want to kind of embrace, embrace the land a little bit, but I'm going to read a passage that is um, about the cosmos as well as the body, I guess. Someone counted to three, the pressure engaged. He dug his nails into my skin and shook the table a little. My bare elbow on the wood felt grated and stung. Pain to me is a portal, an access point to another world, the smallest of places and those infinite in scale. When I broke my arm, I went to the atoms. When I buried my father, I went to the stars. When I came out to my mother, she told me to wash my hair. Then I went to the past. It's the greatest high when your own body is so wrecked you get to leave it for a while. With his hand in that position, he had no chance to win. All I had to do was endure the pinch, the pressure, the sting, and pull his arm a little further out and it was over. I won. The screaming was incredible. The boys, the girls, the little ladies in the kitchen giggled like something extraordinary had happened. Anita Blackburn reading from her new short story collection, How to Wrestle a Girl. I was so taken with the idea of pain as a portal or framing it that way. When did you come to realize pain as a portal? I think... Um... I think I always have had this idea that women have a higher pain threshold for some reason, sort of the physical body it might be connected to childbirth. It might be connected to conditioning, this habitual nature that you will have to suffer this idea. It could be my Southern Baptist, you know, upbringing because, you know, Eve, it all seems so unfair, but it's like, and I remember asking these questions in, in Sunday schools, like, so Eve has to have baby bought, brought, you know, she bit, she bit the apple or, or whatever it is. So this is why she has to suffer in childbirth. This is why she has to yield to her husband's, you know, um, whatever whims come along, which I immediately too disagreed with in, <laughs> in Sunday school. I was just told to be quiet a lot as a kid. So that was also very, very common in my life. But I was thinking about a lot of, a lot of those things with, with the idea of pain and suffering and being a woman and, and being taught that this is your condition. So I was, I was dealing with that. And then I was like sort of upset. I'm also, I, I have a big, you know, superhero kind of um, obsession. And I love the ones that are the most, the powers that are the most, the least desirable, I should say. And sort of one of my favorite franchises, the X-Men, they have this other group, the subgroup that lives underground because all of their powers are so creepy. And <laughs> that they can't function, they can't pass, I guess, for normal. 
So you can't be like, you know, the storms and the Jean Grays where they're all, you know, beautiful and they can walk mm -hmm. around and then control the weather and your mind and everything else. No, they have like tentacle arms and they've got ooh, their powers like they ooze or they just smell bad. <laughs> and I was obsessed with these, with these, this group. So I was thinking about that. Like, what if your own power is that you can, you know, you can have access like this deep spiritual, you know, psychological access to things, but you have to be in extreme pain to do it. Mm. So that was, that became a, a, an obsession. So that kind of idea was, was really written out in a lot of the characters in Black Jesus and other superheroes. And that sort of, they had more, more of a magical, fantastical kind of approach. And for this collection, I wanted to go a little bit deeper into the science, I guess, of the body, kind of the, a little bit more realistic you know, so I was thinking about it in that way, translating that power, that pain condition, that pain superpower into, into this kind of world. How does it fit for a more realistic girlhood experience? Um, and that was kind of, yeah. Well, this listener tweets, look forward to reading your story as a former high school wrestler. Wrestling a woman is harder because their weight distribution <laughs> centers closer to their hips than shoulders, and they're usually extremely flexible very exactly. challenging. <laughs> um, right. You have described yourself as a sentence writer. And I really loved hearing that description because the very first sentences of a lot of your short stories just immediately put you somewhere. They transport you to a place and you know something is going to happen. So for example, when we were talking about smoothies, the first line there was the first time a guy said, I look like a man was at the Jamba Juice stand at the mall. And you're like, okay, wow, something's gonna happen here. And then with Halloween, the first line is, Esperanza and me saw a car following a girl while we were riding back from jujitsu practice. <laughs> Could you talk a little bit about what, what you do to create sentences that do that and why you call yourself a sentence writer? I love being called a sentence writer. So I've embraced it and kind of owned it. But I do think, and I've mentioned this before, that I think it's a code for she doesn't care about plot and she's not oh. into it. <laughs> she's not into it. It, it won't be like a, a big sort of age turner kind of kind of story where you're just hustling to sort of get to what's, what the end is. And it, I don't want my stories to be like that. I want every line to contain something worth savoring, worth thinking about. There should be some insight going forward. And I think it's also being a flash fiction writer primarily um, that, that creates that, that or cultivates that instinct in, my, in myself. But I, te I teach my students this, you know, your first line has to carry a lot in flash fiction because you only have a, you know, less than a thousand words to get the whole story out. And that whole story might be, you know, one, one second, it might be one decade, it might be a lifetime, it might be a generation. So what can you do in that first sentence to establish character? Um, objective and a relationship and also make it poetic, make it interesting somehow. So I, I think about that for all of my first lines, for sure, for any kind of story. But I also think about it as I move through one line to the next, because there has to be a sense of time. You have to be able to look backwards and forwards and also be present in every sentence. There should be this feeling of that, of kind of this continuity, this immortality, this, this sense of future and past and present all the time as you move through a story. If you can accomplish that, you've done it. You did the thing. I don't know if I've done it all the time <laughs> or done it at all, but you get close. So that's the, that's the art is to keep getting closer and closer to that condition. And we have less than two minutes, but I know that 
one of the things readers might be surprised to see is that you also experiment with with form. Um, for example, you have a piece where it's a fitness log that's processing mm -hmm. the character's grief after their father dies. You, you have a crossword puzzle uh, where the story is told through crossword puzzle clues. Uh, but there's also a crossword puzzle itself and you have an answer key to it in the book as well. Could you just talk about um, your process for coming up with forms like this and writing to them? Well, for this one, I definitely start with the character. No matter what you do in fiction, you gotta begin with character, with somebody that's interesting. And then I wanted to choose a text that related to the character somehow. It had to be in their environment. And I wanted to use that text and sort of fill it up with their story, but not write a traditional story first and then kind of sort of force it in there. I had to sort of let the, the structure, the nature of that other text dictate what I was allowed to reveal, what I could say. So I began knowing that I'm gonna do a quiz that this person is, would encounter. So how would their story fit into a quiz? So I would sort of write from that point on. And same thing for the crossword puzzles, like what's going on here? They, they're dealing with this weird coach who was just sort of being highly inappropriate and somewhat criminal with the girls and all of this kind of thing. So I'm not, I don't start with the idea like, oh, let me write about, you know, you know, inappropriate behavior in high school. It began with sort of what, what text would that person encounter in the most safe kind of way, like the safe space that's going to be filled with this volatile kind of mm. danger. So I, I had to sort of use that as my, as my starting point. Well, so many surprises, celebrations, and, and real insights about being a young woman. Vanita Blackburn, thanks so much for How to Wrestle a Girl. It's, it's really incredible. Thank you. And thank you for having me. This was a fun chat. <laughs> Vanita Blackburn, How to Wrestle a Girl, her new short story collection. Check it out. Thanks so much for joining us. And stay with us, listeners, for another segment, this time looking at Omicron. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary all over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.